0: Please, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 8. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13, as we consider the Apostle Paul's exhortation really in these three chapters, 8 and 9 and 10, to flee idolatry. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. If we're concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed, there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, and the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that it will not cause my brother to stumble. Please be seated. Now, surely, we as Americans love our idols. And in fact, somewhat ironically, we even have a show called American Idol, which at its height boasted a massive 38.1 million viewers when Ruben Stoddard beat Clay Aiken for the coveted title of America's Idol. That was 20 years ago in 2003, and the show has only continued to grow in popularity. Now, much more seriously, there are many other gods that we worship. There's the God of Alcohol to which about 29 million alcoholics enslaved, those who are enslaved to alcohol, bend the knee in the United States alone. However, the idols of music, fame, and even alcohol pale in comparison with the idol of sexual freedom, which results in nearly 1 million abortions each year and 2.5 billion emails containing porn, which are either sent or received in the United States alone. Now, if only unbelievers wrestled with idolatry, it would be understandable. Unfortunately, idolatry is so deeply ingrained in us that even the knowledge of the one true God can be used to promote the idols of our own hearts. Too often, our knowledge of God is used for our own selfish purposes. We take pride in the truth we know. We use it to draw people to our cause or divide with others over some carefully derived theological system. Sometimes we may even act as though we have a kind of special knowledge that people need to come to us alone to discover. The knowledge of God, which should bring humility, instead breeds pride in our hearts concerning our perceived superiority over those who we deem to be less learned or perhaps less mature. Instead of using what we know to love God and to love his people more, instead we use, we, we leverage our knowledge about him to gain influence and advantage over others this is a travesty. Our increasing knowledge of the one true creator God should cause us to grow in love and grace towards God's people. And our knowledge of this reality should drive all the other idols from our hearts. And then we should be increasingly consumed with a desire to serve and to worship God alone. This can only take place through the acknowledgement of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no love to God or service of God which does not come through Jesus. So what we'll see this morning is that Christians are called to use their knowledge of God to turn away from idols, to grow in their love for God and for others, and to worship God alone through Christ as the one true creator and Lord. Christians are called to use their knowledge of God to turn away from idols, to grow in their love for God and for others, and to worship God alone through Christ as the one true creator and Lord. True knowledge of God defeats idolatry in the heart of the believer. Now, last week we really did an overview of these three chapters, eight and nine and ten, and we talked a little bit about the nature of idolatry in Corinth because there is a bit of a culture gap to be bridged here. The way idolatry was practiced in the city of Corinth is different than the way we practice it today. Idolatry itself is not different. But the way that it is practiced is, and so we talked about the idea that every part of life was tied to a very visible idolatry, where you could see the little idols, there were the shrines everywhere, and there were sacrifices made to them continually. When you went to work, when you went to a party, when you went to a, a political event, everything in life was tied to an idol. Now that is still true today, it just looks differently, right? We, do, we directly pursue, we've, we've gotten rid of the middleman, and we just pour out our lives, offering our bodies as living sacrifices to these idols. Idols, not to the one true God. Idolatrous meals, also, we discussed. That's the point here. Meat sacrificed or things sacrificed to idols. Those were common right, in, in, in every part of life. They were, again, there were political parties and meals, and there they they were social events and gatherings. You did this for your work. And in many places, during those social events, there would be meat that was sacrificed, animal sacrificed, and then a meal eaten, And that meal was really a celebration of the God. It was a worship service. And yet these meals were incredibly important. They were the places where you developed your contacts, the places where you met your family, the places where you received your entertainment. Most everything about culture was built into these idolatrous meals, and so they were very appealing. They were appealing even to believers who no longer believed or no longer pledged allegiance to those particular gods, it was appealing to go back to those ceremonies for the family benefit, the political benefit, the social and economic benefit that they provided. And so Paul is providing teaching about the nature of things sacrificed to idols, the participation in the ceremonies as well as the eating of the meat that came from them. So all that's kind of bound up in 8 and 9 and 10, and he begins talking about liberty and the use of of conscience, and yet what we will see is by the time we get to chapter 10, that most particularly the participation in the worship service where that food was actually sacrificed was something that he condemns, that Paul condemns. It wasn't simply a use of liberty. The eating of the meat is different. That was a conscience call, right? Right? And yet even that was built around the idea that someone would know that the meat you were eating was sacrificed to idols and that possibly their conscience would be strengthened to sacrifice or to actually pursue idolatry. So the big picture theme here is not liberty of conscience simply, it's not the freedom you have in Christ, it is flee idolatry in every form. And why would he say that? To believers, because even Christians can wrestle with idolatry. In fact, we do all the time, and so do the Corinthians. So we surveyed it, chapter 8, really the introduction, chapter 9, Paul defending his apostleship, because it seems that the Corinthians were saying, and we'll discuss that this morning, look, we all have knowledge. We know what you know, and therefore, we don't have to avoid these idolatrous feasts. We don't have to back out of the cultural expressions of this idolatry, because there are no true idols. Paul, we know what you know, and So why are you telling us what to do? And Paul says, I'm telling you what to do because I'm an apostle. And so you need to do what I say. And you need to follow my example, he says in chapter 9, of setting aside anything that would cause others to stumble that might keep them from the knowledge of the true God, that might keep them bound into their idolatry. Paul says, look, I'll set aside anything. It doesn't matter. And then chapter 10 where he talks about the Israelites I mean, there is, it, it's not an accident that in chapter 10, he says, look, the Israelites, who were God's chosen ethnic people, did not abandon idolatry fully, and anytime they didn't, God judged them. He's not just using that, well, I just want to tell you about the Israelites, saying this is for you as the church, as God's people, you cannot go back into idolatry or you will receive the discipline that comes from that. Take heed, he says in chapter 10, well, the one who thinks he stands must take heed lest he fall. They were being tempted in this area. And so he's coming to them. And then the last part of chapter 10 where he talks about, he ties this directly to the fact that those worship services, really they were demons, not deities as we will see, but demons that were tied in with that worship. And so it was an example of true idolatry. Well, now as we begin in chapter 8, verse 1, really the second part, Paul will be discussing the dangers of idolatry by first engaging with the Corinthians concerning their use of knowledge about God. It's really interesting. He, he says, we're going to talk about meat sacrifice to idols, and then he says, well, let's talk about knowledge for a little bit. He doesn't just, you know, just decide that you know, now I need to bring some general you know, principles. The idea of knowledge, and most specifically knowledge about God, is bound up in this whole issue of idolatry. How you know God, what you do with your knowledge about God, is the way that you defeat idolatry. And so knowledge has to be used properly even the knowledge of God himself. So he implies that the Corinthians have allowed the truth that they know to make them arrogant rather than loving, and therefore they are not pursuing a love relationship with God and instead replacing it with idolatry. That's a bold claim, it's a strong claim, and it's the claim that he's making throughout this section. Corinthians, watch out. You know God. We have knowledge of God altogether, but you are misusing that knowledge in your so-called freedom and you are engaging in actual idolatry. Be careful. So the two points this morning that Paul will will be walking them towards is that fleeing idolatry requires the proper use of knowledge about God, and fleeing idolatry requires a proper content to your knowledge about God. Using properly what you know, and then being sure that you have a proper understanding that that knowledge is full and complete. So let's begin with this thought of fleeing idolatry requires the proper use of knowledge about God. So drop your eyes to the text, chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. We talked about that last week. This is his response to, uh, it appears, a question or really maybe a statement they were making about the nature of things sacrificed to idols. That is the food, the, the ceremonies that came around the worship services, and this idea of idolatry here, right, being food offered up to an idol or a false deity, right? So there was, and it wasn't simply about the wooden or the, or the stone or, or the gold and the silver idol, it was, of course, about the deity that that idol represented. So it's about worshiping false deities, right, and the key word there is false. They don't actually exist. There aren't real deities, but that's what idolatry is. Offering up things that you value to a deity to get what you value, to get what you want. So he says, These, this is what we're going to talk about, and then he immediately launches into this fascinating statement, we know that we all have knowledge. And here I think, again, he's responding to something the Corinthians were saying. He often, he often does this. When he makes a transition... To talk about something that they have addressed in their letter to him, he uses a phrase that I think they were using. I think they were saying, Paul, we all have knowledge. We know what you know. In fact, you taught us this, the fact that there aren't any real gods or true other deities, so we know what you know, and knowing that, we have the freedom then to engage in our culture the way we want. You can't tell us what to do. Paul says, look, I'll, I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that we all have knowledge. And I think underneath that is, I taught you that knowledge. I'm the one that gave you that you wouldn't have it apart from what I taught you and from the Old Testament. Remember how many times he appeals to the Old Testament in the first seven chapters, constantly going back to that authority. So whether they, they certainly it it was a largely Gentile church, so they wouldn't necessarily have been initially aware of things in the Old Testament, but as they coalesced as a church, that Old Testament teaching would have been brought to bear in increasing measure by the Jews, who were becoming Christians and part of that church, and then by Paul himself. So he says, look, we all have knowledge. That's true, and that's number one. Knowledge is available to all believers. And in this case, I think Paul is using the word as most specifically knowledge about God. The word's just very general. It can mean any kind of knowledge. In fact, as we will see, it's kind of a code word for the Corinthians, right? The things that they understood. They were those who claimed to have knowledge. And yet Paul saying, look, we all have knowledge knowledge or we understand truth about God, about man, and about the world as found in the scriptures, as found in the teaching of Christ and available to all believers. We have that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when he begins this letter, he says to them, verse 5, in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. You're right. You have all the knowledge you need. I taught it to you. You are a church abounding in knowledge. The problem is not that you do not know things about God or things about the world in relationship to God. You know these things. In fact, Scripture tells us that we are given in the pages of God's Word all the knowledge that we need to know to properly live in this world. So we know even more than the Corinthians knew. So Paul tells them, look, you have everything you need to know. We have all knowledge. I, as an apostle, came and told you the things that you need to know. There are prophets there who stand up and speak directly from God to reveal to you the knowledge you need to know as a church, really week by week and month by month. You have the Old Testament scriptures. You have everything you need to know. How much more do we, as believers now, with all 66 books of the word of God, how much more in that sense do we have all knowledge? First, or Second Peter 1.3. Seeing this divine power has granted to us pertaining everything pertaining to life and godliness. We don't know everything about everything. We know everything we need to know about spiritual life, about how to become alive, how to have eternal life, and how to look like Jesus. That's godliness. Everything we need to know is found in Scripture. We have, in that sense, all knowledge. Everything we need to know. It goes on to say in 2 Peter 1.4, For by these he has granted to us his magnificent his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You have everything you need to know in order to look more and more like Jesus, escaping corruption, preparing for the time when Christ will return again. You don't need anything else. So he's agreeing with the Corinthians. They were saying we have all knowledge for us. you're right. All the knowledge you need to know, you have, and yet Paul's already addressed to the Corinthians, and we'll see it in just a moment, that the knowledge they had was not of greatest benefit to them because they were misusing it. He tells them over and over that they think they are mature on the basis of the knowledge they know. They think they are spiritual on the basis of the knowledge they have. And Paul says, you're not. You have all this knowledge. You are a church that is gifted in knowing what you need to know about God and about how to live for him, and yet this has caused you to be arrogant that's his next point knowledge wrongly used puffs up the Corinthians were taking this idea of knowledge and then saying well, we have we, we know about God and therefore we have and we have the spirit of God so we have kind of this special ability to be mature and people ought to come to us Paul calls them out for this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where he says we are fools for Christ talking about who the apostles are those who were commissioned by God to bring the message of the gospel to the world. He says, we are fools for Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished. We are without honor. The knowledge that Paul had given them, the knowledge they had because the Spirit had illumined their hearts and what they had in the Old Testament, they were using for their own gain. They were using to elevate themselves even over the apostles and over the apostle Paul. Now, there's a wordplay in this text that's missed in the New American Standard. Right? So if you look back at your text, the New American Standard says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If you have the NIV, or the, excuse me, the ESV, it makes this wordplay obvious. It says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's the wordplay. Paul uses this word, arrogance, it's, it's often translated arrogance, but it's the idea of being puffed up, like you're being pumped up with hot air, you're like a hot air balloon. All this knowledge has not made them, it's not really built anything of value in them, they've simply been puffed up, so they're just are expounding hot air. You prick that balloon and pop, there's nothing left. No value built in that hot air. No edifice, no building underneath that that's solid and strong, you're just puffed the Stay puff marshmallow man. I mean, you got, there's no substance to you. If you are pricked, you will pop. He's saying, look, you have all this knowledge. Right? But knowledge wrongly used puffs up. And notice, I, I've added that in, in, the, in the outline point. Paul just says knowledge makes arrogant. But please understand that he cannot possibly mean that knowing things about God by itself makes you arrogant because he is writing an epistle to tell them things about God. Sometimes people totally misunderstand this passage. Well, yeah, any kind of knowledge, if you know anything, you're just arrogant. No, knowledge wrongly used makes you arrogant. We have to know about Jesus. We have to know what he did. We have to know about the nature of the world in light of who God is. But how are you going to use that knowledge? So when it's wrongly used, it puffs you up. It gives you nothing but a bunch of hot air. Isaiah I 5.21 Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, who are clever in their own sight. Jeremiah 9.23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this. This is fascinating, that he understands and knows me. A wise man doesn't boast in his knowledge, yet what is he supposed to do? Understand and know to have knowledge of God. So it's the boasting about, it's the puffing of yourself up about the or on the basis of the knowledge that you know that is so dangerous, and the Corinthians were puffed up. They had taken the truth about God and leveraged it towards their own pride. First Corinthians four eighteen, Paul says, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. First Corinthians five two, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. The thought that their knowledge of who God was, their knowledge of grace, their knowledge of salvation by grace through faith alone had allowed them to keep someone in the church who was committing incest. He goes, like you're, you're arrogant. Your knowledge has made you arrogant. And as we're going to see over the course of these next weeks, their knowledge had made them arrogant about going and sitting in worship services where demons were actually being honored. It says your knowledge is being misused. It's puffed you up. You think you are something when you are actually nothing. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. All Christians possess knowledge, says David Garland, but not all Christians know as they are meant to know. And perhaps I could say it this way. I would say pure knowledge, just the information puffs up. Right? If you just have the information, right? and I would say true knowledge Builds up, And we'll see what true knowledge is composed of in just a moment. But I want to pause here for a minute because he's talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to those who actually know God, who've repented and put faith and trust in Christ. He says, even you can use the knowledge that you have to puff yourself up, to be arrogant and proud, and you're not building anything of value. That translates directly to Grace Community Church in 2023. That we have lots of knowledge about God, and we ought to. Paul is making no excuses for giving them knowledge, but he is coming against them for using it improperly. They're all puffed up. they like, look who we are. Look how great we are. Look how mature we are. Well, maybe and maybe not. We will see if we as Grace Community Church or if we as individuals are properly using our knowledge, but be careful. Don't just walk by this. Well, I'm not puffed up. Well, that's what the puffed up person says. No one walks into the room, no one walked in this morning going, I'm puffed up, look at me, I'm just a bunch of hot air. And yet, unfortunately, some of us, or maybe even us as a church in some ways, are full of hot air. We're going to have to be really careful. We're going to have to get pricked a little bit. And so this morning, I want us to be careful. You have all knowledge. I could, I could say that. You have everything you need to know. You've been taught it, you have it in the Bible, but are you puffed up instead of built up? Are we just full of hot air? What? Makes the difference, that's what you ought to be asking. Whoa, okay, how are we going to know? Well, the apostle Paul tells us, so look down in your text. Knowledge makes arrogant, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, love builds up. And immediately you're thinking, well, wait a minute then, does that mean I throw all knowledge out the window and I just love? No, so I'll put it this way, number three, point three is knowledge combined with love builds up. There is no such thing as love which does not have a component of knowledge. These are not opposites. He's contrasting them, knowledge and love, but they're not opposites. Like you can have knowledge, you can have love, you can't have both. Now, you can have knowledge and you can have love, but if you have knowledge with love, that's effective. Knowledge without it is worthless. i put it this way knowledge, or there is no, it's not possible to have love without knowledge. It is possible to have knowledge without love. That's the deadly danger. Philippians 1.9. And this I pray, says Paul, same, same writer, different church. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Love must have knowledge. It's built on knowledge. There is no love if you don't know. And yet, there's a true intimacy that's built into this kind of knowing. There's a motivation to serve and love God, to delight in Him, to find your satisfaction in Him alone, to see other people walking with Jesus, being conformed to the image of Christ. There's a motivation that must come with knowledge in order for it actually to edify or to build up. And if it doesn't come with that, then we're nothing but a bunch of hot air. And we have to be so careful. That our motivation, is, our, our motivation is love properly directed towards seeing others look like Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says in Ephesians chapter 4 that you are to speak the truth in love. You are to have knowledge and impart knowledge in love, with love. That's the motivation. And they always come together. If you have true love, you must have knowledge. And so you are putting those two things together and the church is built up. He says, when we have this, when we speak the truth in love, we are being built up in all aspects into him who is the head. Ephesians 4.15, we studied that. And then as a result, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together, verse 16 of Ephesians 4, together with what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth, the building up of the body for the building up of itself in love. So true love takes the knowledge of God, the knowledge of who we are, and then uses it to direct people to find their satisfaction in God and to look more like him on a daily basis. Now, we understand that all of the book of 1 Corinthians is building towards what? Chapter 13. You see, everything the Corinthians, they did, they did without sufficient love. Everything. They didn't believe in God with a proper love. They didn't listen to other people's teaching with the proper love, so they had factions. They didn't view sexual purity with the proper love or sexual intimacy with a proper view towards love, and so they abused it. Everything was wrong because they didn't love, and he reaches 1 Corinthians 13, and what does he say? You can, have, you can speak with the tongue of men and of angels. You can know all mysteries and all knowledge. You can deliver your body to be burned. You can sell your possessions to feed the poor, and if you don't have love, you are Nothing. Nothing. I mean, not something, not a little bit, not of some benefit. You are nothing. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So knowledge that is basted and motivated towards love is the only thing which actually builds up the church. David Garland, the only knowledge which counts with Paul is that which is Christ-centered and results in other-centered, loving Behavior, love, informed and shaped by the pattern and example of Christ should be the norm for regulating our actions. And so we're going to have to take stock this morning. Where are we at? Does our knowledge of God drive us towards a delight in him, a sacrifice of our own selves so that we take on his character and then a pouring out into the lives of others, drawing them towards us in intimate relationship so that they will and we will look more like Jesus. Be careful because point four here is that knowledge exercised in arrogance is deceitful. Knowledge exercised in arrogance is deceitful. You think you are something. Look back at our text. If anyone supposes, verse 2, that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Again, don't misunderstand these verses. Paul isn't saying you can't know anything. There's no truth about Jesus, no truth about God. We just all hold that lightly and we're all humble about it. We, well, God might be right. It it might be the right way that God is. He's not saying that. The issue is if you are convinced on the basis of your knowledge that you have come to know, that you have reached some kind of pinnacle, that people ought to come to you, that you are the be-all and the end-all of knowledge, then you don't know anything actually. True knowledge enables you to hold and proclaim it with the proper kinds of humility. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, that is, I've got it down, this truth I understand in such a way that it exalts my maturity over yours. that it makes me the one that is the expert. You ought to come to me. Paul says, look, then you don't, you don't know. Notice what he says. He hasn't known as he ought to know. He's not saying you shouldn't know anything. The one who says he knows is ridiculous. Stop saying you know anything. He doesn't say that. He says the one who supposes he knows anything hasn't known as he ought to know. To know How do we as Grace Community Church know? Do we know things about God as we ought to know them? And this will be reflected by our love, by the way that we pour our lives out into others. You see, this is very common. We tend to take the truth, the principles that we know, things about God, things about the nature of the world, and we build systems around them, and then we make them unassailable, and we tell other people, well, you, you'd better fit my system." The way I live my life, you better live your life that way. And so my truth causes me to judge you concerning things that aren't necessarily that direct principle. Because we don't hold principle lightly, but we had best hold the extensions of that principle out into our lives. And I'm not talking so much about theological systems. That can certainly happen. Well, we hold our theological systems more strongly than we hold the knowledge of Jesus. And somehow the nuances of that. And we always trace it back. Well, no, this is the knowledge of Jesus. There, there's, everything about my theological system is directly related to Jesus, and if you deny any of it, you don't love Christ. Right? Because there, there's no such thing as that theological system. The Bible is the perfect system, and if we got it all right, that would be true, but we don't all. Every system doesn't have absolute perfection. But I'm talking more about the idea of your philosophical systems, your life systems. You know that we ought to bring children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and parents are to accomplish that. And so you build all of your life around a particular kind of schooling system which says, look, this is the only way to do it. And if you don't do it this way, you don't know. See what I mean? I'm telling you, you don't know as you ought to know then. You don't know that truth, that truth about parents bringing up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord if you build a system around it and then judge everyone else on the basis of your system that you built Yeah, we got to bring them up that way, but it has a lot of different expressions. Pick your thing. How about a Calvinist? Someone who believes in delightful doctrines that John Calvin himself held, which are wonderful about God's sovereignty, about man's depravity, about God's election from before the beginning of time. Somehow he hears about these delightful truths called, he calls it Calvinism, or somebody does, they get super excited about this, and all of a sudden they morph into this monster were nice, calm, quiet maybe, maybe even passionate, joyful Christians before, and now they turn into this rage monster. We call it Calvinists in their cage stage, and all of a sudden, nobody's a Christian. Nobody loves Jesus but them. Nobody ever knew anything about how to serve God unless they proclaimed John Calvin from the housetops or even the doctrines of grace, remove Calvin's, Calvin's name from it. It is odious. They do not know as they ought to know, and so you stick them in a cage. So we call it cage stage Calvinism. You just need to get away from people. We're going to stick you in this little cage here until you've contemplated the nature of the doctrines of grace and you have decided that you are the most humble, miserable person on the face of the earth to whom God has shown his grace. And you don't just bust out of your cage telling everybody about how worthless and worm-like you are and then bashing them on the head with your worthlessness. You stay in the cage until you walk out and you say, God has been so gracious to me. Can I tell you about the God who has loved you from before the beginning of time? Well, you're ready to be out of the cage. You know as you ought to know, but not before then. Pick your thing. Pick your fad. Pick your thing based on knowledge and go to the internet and find some kind of knowledge that puffs you up and, and then immediately put that away. We don't need fads here. We need to know as we ought to know. We need truth. We need doctrine. We need to know that God is sovereign and that he is sovereign in salvation and that he alone is the one who saves and that our hearts are evil to the fullest extent of being permeated with sin. We need to know those things, but we need to know them with love. And then we know as we ought to know. Again, pick your thing. I might have missed yours. Like, I'm not, I don't even know what Calvinism is. What are you talking about? Right, schooling, I'm not sure what you were talking about. I, just, I, I, just, I teach my kids, that's great. But what is your thing that you then don't love people on the basis of because you say, well, this is my knowledge of God. Well, the Corinthians had all kinds of systems, all kinds of things that they were basing their knowledge on, and they were puffed up. And Paul says, look, you haven't known the way you ought to know. Galatians 6.3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he what? He deceives himself. That's exactly what's being talked about here. And please understand, anytime you think you are something, you are nothing, and so you're wrong. It's not like you, at some point you can say, well, now I think of myself as something and I am. No, you never are. You are always wrong. You are always deceiving yourself. You humbly take the truths of the word of God. Pour them back towards God in love and out towards others. And that's our next point. Knowledge is found through love to God. All this is building. Paul's building a theology of knowledge. What do you know about God? And that's vital. He's not just throwing this in here because he's like, he went on a squirrel chase. This is vital for them to flee from idolatry. If you hold your knowledge about God wrongly, if you use it wrongly, you are an idolater by definition. If you misunderstand the way, you are to be knowing God. and So he brings this powerful statement to bear back in our text, verse 3. If anyone but, here's the, it's a contrast to those who are puffed up with knowledge. It's not just throwing this in here as a truism. This is a truism, right? This, this is fundamentally true for every believer at every time. But he puts it here in this text for the Corinthians because they are misunderstanding their knowledge. And he says, look, here's how you really know if you are edified by your knowledge. That's if you love God. It says here, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. He keeps using this word, no, no, no. And now he puts it back and he says, look. The way you're going to know if you're using your knowledge properly is if you love God. And the key issue in your love to God is not that you somehow built or established that relationship, it's that actually if you love God, it means that you are known by him. You are one of his children, that he knows you. So really the most important thing in all of our understanding is not what we know about God, but the fact that God knows us. Are you known by God? That's what matters first. What we know about God is vital. It's important. It builds back our love towards him as we build it on knowledge. But what really matters is not how much you know about him, but does he even know you at all? And your love to him is the demonstration of his knowledge of you. That's what Paul is saying. Knowledge is found through love to God. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. First John 4, 7. Beloved, Let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. In this is love, says John in 1 John, not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That ought to humble you. You you didn't through your knowledge somehow build a relationship towards God. He loved you, sent you the truth of the gospel through whoever preached it to you and then built in your heart, brought to your dead heart to life so that you would know him and that you would be able to love him. And God knows us intimately and deeply. That is the most important thing about us as Christians and that's what you tell other people. It's so not what I know and look at the stuff I do. It's said, I'm known by the God of the universe. That's what matters more than anything. My love back towards him is out of a, Total appreciation for the fact that he would choose to know me, the one who is truly and fully a worm, as it were, one who is broken by sin, made useless, made dead in my trespasses and sins. God loves me, and I'm eternally stunned by that. That's what the world ought to know, first and foremost, about our knowledge. That's what the church ought to be proclaiming, so that our love to God, because of his knowledge of us, that true, intimate relationship. That's what that know means. It's it's often related in the Old Testament. You take that word back into the Old Testament. It has to do with intimacy. Adam knew his wife. He didn't just know her name. He was intimate with her. Well, that's how God knows you. That's what it means here. Those who love God are known by him. Their love is a reflection of the fact that he has an intimate relationship with them. John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Galatians 4.9. But now that you have come to know God, I love this, and he flips it around immediately, or rather to be known by God. That's really what it means. You've come to know God, but what that means is you are known by God. How is it? Notice what he ties it to in Galatians 4.9. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Don't go back to idolatry. How are you going to keep from doing that is by recognizing that God has loved you. God has known you. Now that you've known that, how can you go back? He's saying the same thing to the Corinthians. You've known God. He knows you. How can you go back to dining in an idol's temple, pursuing a worship service that actually is tied in with, partnered with demons, the ones who hate God? That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. Don't do it. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The issue is not what we know, but who we are known by. The issue is not what we know, but who we love. The important thing is not to know information, but to know God in the truth about him that we know. And again, understand Love and knowledge are not mutually exclusive, but knowledge is not properly known or used if it is not governed by the love of God. Those who know God, those who, excuse me, those who love God are known by him. Again, David Garland, he's reminding them that loving God means that they are known by God and that, and that draws sharp boundaries that set them apart from the worshipers of false gods and delimits what they may and may not do. Those who love God and are known by God may not dally in the shrines of other gods. That's the whole point. Your knowledge is to be used to deepen and grow in your love for God. God gives us access to the knowledge of him so that we can know him, be loved by him, and love others properly. So that's the proper use of our knowledge. To grow in our love for God, therefore to grow in love for others to express our knowledge of the one true God properly. But also, second point here, and we'll just get about halfway through this this morning, fleeing idolatry requires the proper content of knowledge about God. So he's going to go back and revisit what we know. He says, look, we all know, but yet you're using your knowledge wrongly. Well, what is it that we actually know? So we do have to have a proper understanding of who God is and what idols are. So verse 4, Therefore, Look, if anyone loves God, he's known by him. You need to know properly what you know about idols and about God. So let's go back over what that is. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, and just bring back the same, I stopped and talked about knowledge now. Now let's go back to the direct understanding of what it means to eat these things. It says, we know, again, he keeps using this word, over. No, no, no. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no God but one. So part of that knowledge, he says, that we all know is this, that there aren't any actual idols in the world, that there's no God but one. Well, what does this actually mean? Is Paul saying that there are other gods, but no one as powerful as he is? Some people postulate that about this passage. There's no other gods. There's no other gods as powerful as me. That's what he's saying. I don't think that's what he's saying. What he is saying is that there is only one true creator God. There's only one person who can be defined in this way as God, the God of the Bible. There are no other deities. He's not saying that there aren't other powers. There are. He created them. But there is only one true creator God, only one being worthy of being called God. That's it. No others. There aren't sub-gods, little gods, other gods, close to gods. There's only one exclusive in the universe. No other gods exist. We know there is no such thing as an idol in the world. And what does he mean by that? He says that there is no God but one. Every one of those idols linked to a certain deity, every one of those deities is false. Again, as we've said and as we'll see, it doesn't mean that there's nothing happening there. It just means there's no God being worshipped. This is fundamental. The idol is a representation of a deity. Since there are no real deities, there are no actual idols. No idol that represents a God that actually exists and can influence the world in any significant way because they don't exist, Psalm 115.4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot spell. It just keeps going on. They have hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will be like them, everyone who trusts in them. There's, There's no real deity we're still fooled by that to some degree. Somehow, I mean, the world is always thinks that there's some other close to God out there. We, sometimes we even view Satan or the demons as, well, they're kind of right next to God or God fights Satan. We were doing our VBS this week and there's the good kingdom and the bad kingdom. Well, yeah, there are two kingdoms, but God rules both in that sense. He has allowed the evil kingdom to exist, but it's not a, an equal opposite ruler. We're not yin-yang here, not Kung Fu Panda know, the black and the white and they fight each other and, and who's gonna win? There's only one God, and there are no pretenders to the throne, none. That's what, he's, that's what is being laid out here, and we know that as Christians, but we, we give that knowledge up. We, we give, we give a, a, a nod of the head almost to other deities, and certainly everyone else in the world who isn't a true believer thinks there are other kinds of gods, whether that all just coalesces into themselves, the ones who can actually determine their reality, or is built around all these other deities. Jeremiah ten fourteen. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Don't misunderstand. He's not insulting men in that sense. Nobody knows anything. They're all dumb. He's saying, every man, no man has the true knowledge of God because they're all idolaters. Every man, apart from the true knowledge of God through Christ, is an idolater. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful and there's no breath in them. So the corollary to there are no such thing as idols is there is no God but one. Of course, this is a reflection of what? The Shema. All right, the most fundamental proclamation, really, of the Old Testament. Behold, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's not primarily a statement about the Trinity, although it fits. And we'll talk about the Trinity next week when we talk about God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's primarily a declaration of the uniqueness of God himself, the Trinity, the triune God, is unique. There's no sub-gods. He says, look, Israel, there's one God. He's the master and ruler of all, and there is no deity apart from him. Habakkuk 2.19, woe to him who says, to a piece of wood, awake! To a mute stone, arise! And that is your teacher? Just the sarcasm dripping from that? And yet, The sadness of that thought that you would say to a stone, Arise, teach me. Again, we got rid of the middleman. Now we tell to our scientists, Arise, teach me. To our philosophers, Arise, teach me. What are they going to teach you? They have nothing to say because they do not serve the one true God. They're idolaters. No other source. So what does this mean? If there's only one true creator God, what does it mean? There's no other source of knowledge or wisdom. Think about it, every other thing is created. So any wisdom that another thing would have only comes from God. He directs all of it. No other absolute source of wisdom. No other source of truth. No other source of power. No other source of life and death. When you go to these countries, you go to Papua New Guinea and they have all these gods so they won't die. They think there's gods that kill you in this way and gods that kill No, there's only one God. And he's in charge not only of life but also of death. This is fundamental understanding, and we as Christians have it. You already know this, right? This is Christianity 101, but we forget it. Paul says, look, we all have this knowledge. Let's be reminded that there aren't any real idols, no real deities, because there's only one God, and so therefore there's no other knowledge, no other power, no other sovereignty, no other life, and no other one who controls death as well, only God. So what does that mean? What we'll talk about tomorrow, or next Sunday, is that everything exists for him, through him, to him, and back to his glory, and to his honor. God alone ordains all things. Deuteronomy 32, 39. I am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and give life. I have wounded is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. That's what it means when there is only one God. So honor him, worship him. Well, final thought here, the world worships many so-called deities. It isn't that the world doesn't worship them. Paul's not saying, well, there actually isn't any other worship. There's, there's nothing else that affects people, so it's just there's worshiping God, and then everything else is just meaningless. He's not saying that. Back to our text for our final thought this morning. Even though, verse 5, there are so-called gods, right, if there are so-called gods, whether in the heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. He's not backing up on what he just said. There's only one God. Oh, no, actually, there are many gods and many lords. He's saying, no. When people worship these, notice what he calls them, so-called deities, they are submitting themselves underneath the lordship and the godhood of what they believe. That matters. And then Paul's going to trace that directly into chapter 10 and say what's really going on there, there is they're not enslaved by some deity, they're enslaved by demons. But those are powers that God himself created. What a travesty that you would allow yourself to go to a celebration that is tied in with demons and then try to walk into communion and say, oh, I love God, and I'm also gonna participate with demons whom God created and judged unto eternal hell. It's this bigger picture point. There are many so-called gods. And he uses the word so-called because they have a name that they are something and they are not. So if a guy came to you and say, I play golf, and I play golf well. I'm a so-called golfer, right? And you would go out on the golf uh, links with me, and I would play it and go, you're so-called. You can't play that at all. You're terrible. Paul Edmison would come out and say, no, this is how you actually play. You're so, you you got no name to being able to play golf at all. In a much more infinite and greater sense, all those gods are out there on the links, as it were. They're so-called deities. The real one comes and says, you got nothing but. For unbelievers who worship those so-called deities, they're entrapped and enslaved to the very kinds of worship that they think free them. So Paul's acknowledging that here. No, there are many gods and many lords. There are many of those whom unbelievers submit themselves to. What they don't understand is that slavery is actually built into demons. Because he says in chapter 10, they don't even know. The Gentiles don't know that's the case. They think they're worshiping an actual God. And they're not. It's tied in with demons. Believing in something doesn't make it real, but it can and does enslave your life. What you believe in impacts you, but what you believe in doesn't automatically become real. See, our world has forgotten that. They think if they believe in something, they can make it real. I believe in this God or this thing or this gender. I can just make it real because I believe in it. No, no, but it will enslave you. And if it's not God, it will destroy you. Belief matters. Your gods and your lords matter. You need to pick. You must choose the one true God. And that's next week. We'll spend our entire morning next week on verse 6. Let's just read it to finish out this morning. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ for whom or by whom are all things and we exist through him. That's who we are, not the worshipers of these false deities. So a couple of thoughts for you. Because remember, he's talking to believers, not unbelievers. This is not the evangelistic session this morning. This is the call to believers to make sure that they are knowing things properly and not subtly worshiping other gods. Are you learning and exercising your knowledge about God with the proper attitude of love, humility, kindness, gentleness, and patience? Are you properly using the knowledge of God to love God and love others? Are you pursuing the proper knowledge of God or are you wasting your time pursuing things that just waste your time? That is, all the other knowledge you have, you're pursuing without that overall knowledge that everything goes back to God. So you're wasting your time with your hobbies and with your talents. Not that those things are a waste of time if properly directed, but you're wasting your time because somehow you think those are the be-all and the end-all of what you're doing. And it's the knowledge of God and this love towards God And a corresponding depth of intimacy with him, the most important pursuit of your life. Because there is only one God. And so therefore, the pursuit of love to him and love to his people is the most important thing. And I just end on that encouraging note. That's what Christians are. That's who we are. And as you are doing that, you are serving the only actual God that exists. And you ought to delight and pursue that to the fullest extent of your energy and effort. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for this knowledge that we have. That we do have knowledge. You have given us your truth. You've given us your word. And we can delight in these truths that we know. Lord, I pray that you would help us individually and as a church to hold these truths in love. Lord, that that we we would be known by you. This is what we long for more than anything else. We don't want to be known by the world We don't want to be known to be certain things in the world. We long to be known as those who are known by you. And I pray that you would help us as a church to build and deepen in these truths as we work our way through this powerful text. In your precious name, amen.